Hello, I'm Roman Reyes, and this is The Takeoff Message, a show for politics leaders and those who want to keep them accountable. This isn't just a show about politics. It's a show about how to be a better citizen. This age is marked by extreme levels of corruption, the American democracy basically unveiling. And it's going to take citizens doing on-the-ground work to keep democracy alive. Symbols matter. They help us to define who we are and what we stand for. Many of the greatest artists in history saw their art and politics as inseparable. Yet, when it comes to political movements, society has a limited attention span. Public discourse should be aimed to affect policy change rather than simply elevate symbolism. As charitable, charitable students of America pointed out on their Instagram, 20 million people posted black squares on their Instagram, but less than 9 million have signed Breonna Taylor's petition. Black Lives Matter is not a trend, yet people treat it as such. On June 8th, Democratic lawmakers wore kente cloths and kneeled in silence for 8 minutes and 46 seconds in memory of George Floyd, who was brutally murdered by a police officer kneeling on his neck. The online world immediately ridiculed the Democrats, basically performing a shallow, performative gesture that homogenized the entire African and African American community. What does George Floyd have to do with the Ashanti tribe of Ghana and Togo? Ironically, the kente cloths worn by Democratic politicians were historically worn by rich Africans known to be slave owners and slave traders, than slave traders themselves. Hardly an appropriate choice for a vigil. Time and time again, I see the same supposed progressives behave in ways that are paramount to the white savior complex, a phenomenon best illustrated in Rudyard Kipling's notorious poem, The White Man's Burden. The poem calls upon white explorers to ally with black or brown communities to save them from lives of ignorance and backwardsness. This labor is the burden that white Europeans, as the privileged nation of the world, must undertake. Such explorers might not hold spite towards people of color, but the paternalism implicit in the, in the assumption that, pe that such people need to be civilized to be saved became firmly entrenched in the psyche of the British and American progressive movement of the early 1900. Theodore Roosevelt, who portrayed himself as a trust-busting man of people at home, was a notorious imperialist abroad. He undermined sovereignty of Colombia's control of the Panama Strait to build the America-owned Panama Canal. His Rough Rider expeditions to liberate Cuba from the Spanish actually laid the groundwork for the Batista dictatorship and the American occupation of the Philippines he initiated was marred by racism and brutality towards the native population. Yet, all this was considered okay because supposedly, the American flag, a symbol of progress, was planted on the soil of these three little, supposedly backwards nations. A hundred years have passed since the publication of Rudyard Kipling's The White Man's Burden, yet I still see the same dynamic of American politicians embracing symbols of equality and justice while, taking, while, take, while supporting up policies which hurt communities of colors at home and abroad. 
On one hand, you have the colorblind politician who argues that their policies treat everyone the same. They don't see race. This may seem like an egalitarian statement, but with America's history of redlining, ghettoizing, and systematically mass incarcerating people of color, saying that you don't see race is basically tantamount to saying, I don't care about fixing the sins of the past, get over it. On the other hand, you have the tokenizing politicians. These are politicians who tokenize themselves or others while supporting policies that could only be seen as helpful from the perspective of a technocrat intent on, t intent on social control. Take, for example, Kamala Harris, who supported criminali criminalizing truancy. She laughed when asked if she would legalize marijuana usage. She could be considered the prime example of the kind of politician who carries the half-white woman's burden. Her aim was never to liberate the black community, but to get it to progress by giving up its vices. She's a civilizing progressive in the Theodore Rooseveltian sense, someone who behaves inclusively towards people of color only if they behave on her terms and accept her authority. What about Elizabeth Warren? During her presidential campaign, Elizabeth Warren tokenized herself as the possible first female president and mainstream media aided up, publishing op-ed after op-ed of the symbolic significance of having a female president. However, Warren's stances on actual policy frequently take the side preferred by powerful interest groups, such as America's military industrial complex and Israeli expansionist lobbying groups. As Sarah Lazar wrote in Jacobin, in the midst of Israel's brutal 2014 Operation Protective Edge war on Gaza that killed more than 2,100 Palestinians and horrified the world with the slaughter of four Palestinian children playing on the beach, Warren repeated Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's talking points to defend Israel's bombing of schools. When Hamas puts its rocket launchers next to hospitals, next to schools, they're using their civilian population to protect their military assets, she said at a town hall meeting on August 20th, 2014. And I believe Israel has a right at that point to defend itself. Let me make that absolutely clear. Elizabeth Warren is in favor of bombing schools and hospitals. It makes one wonder what Elizabeth Warren's motive is for the highly choreographed speech complete with a voiceover highlighting footage of flag-waving fist-raised marchers that she said as her Twitter profile's pinned tweet. Like all of Elizabeth Warren's messaging, she carefully avoids the elephant in the room of whether or not she supports defunding the police, the call that the protesters actually want. It is clear that there is a gap between the vision of activists and the vision of politicians. When Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders took the presidential debate stage in 2016, his message was to make police more representative of the communities that they policed. In other words, to recruit more officers of color and make policing concerned with the needs of the community, to truly protect and serve in an appropriate way. By comparison, many of today's high-profile progressive activists, urged on by celebrities and mainstream media, are increasingly adopting the call, abolish the police. 
While it is true that some police departments should be disbanded and restructured, saying abolish the police hardly addresses the question of what comes next. For most, abolish the police is simply another symbolic slogan. Most people, that is. In her article, yes, we mean literally abolish the police, Maryam Kaba advocates for a utopian vision. This is in the New York Times, by the way. She basically advocates for a utopian vision in which policing is unnecessary because the money that is allocated to policing will instead be allocated to social welfare states that will somehow completely eliminate the presence of crime in society. In my opinion, abolishing the police seems more likely to bring about an even more dystopian system in which private guards and militias become accountable only to those with the money to hire them. Residents of cities like Detroit have already begun hiring private guards to essentially act as a police force for their neighborhoods. The test of history gives social movements another required question than just conviction. And that is the question of direction. Will we become distracted setting up, I don't know, police-free autonomous zones like the one in Seattle, or will public discourse refocus on specific policies to make policing safe for American citizens? Anarchy and the current militarized police state are two extremes that ought to be avoided. My friends who live in and near Chicago know that abolishing the police for good would be counterproductive, if not catastrophic. From what I've seen, it's people who live in relatively safe areas that are adopting the call, abolish the police. I wonder how the picture would change if instead of giving attention to those with the most dogmatic slogans and most social media clout, the media instead would pay attention to people like black, Hispanic, and Asian small business owners, or women of color who work around men. I wonder if they think abolishing the police is a good idea. The more that activists rely on slogans such as abolish the police, the more opposition will arise from people who want to hijack the entire movement. The Black Lives Matter movement must aim not only to be successful, but impactful. And for this, activists must make it imperative to educate themselves and their followers on policy. Abolishing all police is not a tenable, nor a desirable goal, but the policies advocated by eight can't wait. Banning chokeholds and strangleholds, requiring de-escalation, requiring warning before shooting, the exhaust of all alternatives before shooting, a duty to intervene when other officers are misusing their power, banning shooting at moving vehicles, establishing a clear and well-defined use of force continuum for each police weapon and tactic, and requiring comprehensive reporting for abuses of force are enactable and crucially needed reforms for ending the patterns of brutality and mass incarceration that have become ingrained in the system. The House Reform Bill, sponsored by Karen Bass, makes a good start in curbing the use of excessive force. However, with the bill heading towards gridlock and certain death in the Senate, it's going to be up to grassroots activists to keep law enforcement accountable. There is a silver lining to the Senate gridlock, and that is that it should make people look for ways to enact change where it has an even more direct impact, the local level. This will not be done by imitating high-profile talking heads and towing the line of Democratic Party elites, but instead by listening to members of the community, 
making informed decisions in local elections, and taking part in civic life through events like city town hall meetings. Police community engagement initiatives should not automatically be written off as propaganda, but they should be viewed with scrutiny. The goal, bus the goal of this movement must be to remove the antagonism that we see in the current system with a state of healthy skepticism, police and community watching each other. Activists must press for the establishment of citizen oversight boards of police departments, and local police forces must hold themselves accountable by removing bad officers. National level reforms are critically important, but they will not solve everything. People of color and citizens who are generally concerned with community well-being must join law enforcement themselves to change the culture of policing from being one of predatory policing to one of democratic policing, demanding transparency, accountability, and representation, the same attributes that are needed to restore democracy itself, will also make America's police less likely to commit the horrid violence that we saw in the case of George Floyd, and more able to serve the community. It's going to take a little more work than posting black squares on Instagram. This has been the takeoff message from Roman Reyes.